All right. Our scripture readings for today come from John. I'll be reading John chapter 11, verses 47 through 50. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Our second reading comes from John 12, verses 3 through 5. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Our uh, sermon text from today is from John 1, verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of this only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about this man and cried out, this was he of whom I had said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So, the idea for today's sermon uh, really arose out of some questions. So, one of the things that I like to do when I read scripture is just ask questions of the text. And so this came out of uh, two of the passages that we just read uh, from the Gospel of John. And as I was thinking about these questions, this question I had, and as I worked through it, I realized that the answer led to something that I think is very fundamental about what it is that makes the kingdom of God different, what it is that makes the kingdom of God special, and how it differs from our own ideas of kingdom and our own inclination. And it's this difference and some of the conclusions that result from it that I want to share today. However, in order to understand or to examine this question I was struggling with, I need to set up the problem. And so we need to look at these two passages for John. So if we look at our first reading from John 11, um, we find that the leaders of the Jews are very worried because Jesus has established himself as a credible Messiah. Our text says that the chief priests were particularly disturbed because Jesus had performed many signs. Now, just prior to this passage, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And that tended to get some people's attention, as you would imagine. Um, The other Gospels uh, call the signs miracles, but for whatever reason, John uses the term sign. And in fact, John is particularly interested in these signs that Jesus performs. In fact, he's organized his gospel very intentionally around a series of seven of these signs. And for John, these signs are significant because they illustrate Jesus bringing new 
creation into the world. Just as God created the original creation in seven days, Jesus brings about the new creation with seven signs. And John will refer to the number seven repeatedly throughout his gospel. And when we come to John's telling of the Passion Week, John is at pains to let us know the particular day of the week different events occur so that the symbolism is not lost on us. So these signs are very important for John. Um, It's helpful also to think of Jesus' resurrection as an eighth sign, symbolizing the first day of the week of the new creation. And it's why the early Christians and, consequently, Resurrection Church uses the octagon as a symbol for the eighth day. Now, the point, though, is that the chief priests had realized that Jesus just might be the real deal. Now, you might think that the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah would be good news to those who purportedly lead the Jewish people. After all, wasn't the Messiah's arrival the event that everyone was waiting for? Wasn't it the last chapter in the glorious story of God's chosen people? Well, it turns out that not everyone was so excited about having a Messiah. The problem was that the Messiah meant new creation and it meant revolution and change with things like the first becoming last, the mighty being brought down from their thrones and those of humble estate exalted. And that was not good news to the people who had wealth and power and were really actually quite happy with the present state of things. For the Jewish leaders, order was preferable to chaos, especially if it meant trouble from Rome, who they might not have loved, but had established an understanding with that yielded them prosperity and left their position secure. So it is within this context that the high priest Caiaphas makes the statement that I think is important here. It is better for for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas has solved the problem for the Jewish leaders. Order could be maintained and many lives saved if the insurgency that Jesus was leading was cut off into its head. Take Jesus out, and that's one less Jewish revolutionary inciting people toward a violent confrontation with Rome that, most importantly for Caiaphas, would end up doing, uh, would end up not so well for him and his pals. However, what I want to focus on is this argument Caiaphas makes. And the problem I have, and this is what led me to my question, is that I find his argument pretty good. I mean, it's logically correct, isn't it? Uh, You know, if you're a fan, as many of you all know, I'm a fan of Star Trek, the original series, not the next generation. Don't let Mason tell you that's good. All right. Uh, Star Trek, you know, Mr. Spock is the Vulcan, and the Vulcan race is founded on logic. They all live by logic, and they have a famous saying that Spock likes to quote, okay? And it's, uh, it's, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or the one, right? Star Trek Two. okay? In philosophy, it's an ethic that is known as utilitarianism, which holds that society should make decisions that create the greatest good for the most number of people. And that seems on the face of it pretty, pretty reasonable. I mean, what's the problem? Now, that leads me to the second passage. And this passage actually occurs immediately after this story. Jesus is in a town called Bethany. He's having dinner with Lazarus, the guy he just raised from the dead. 
and a few others. Suddenly, Lazarus' sister Mary approached Jesus with a large quantity of perfume. Uh, According to the text, the perfume was known as nard or spikenard is what it's called. And get this, it's produced uh, by a flower found in Nepal, China, and India. That's the only place this flower is found. Okay, We're dealing with the ancient world and we're in Israel. That is a long way from Nepal, China, or India. And so you can imagine this is amazingly expensive. It would have been rare. It would have been luxurious. It's, it's a, it's a, it would have been uh, uh, unbelievable that anyone would have even had it. But and according to Judas Iscariot, we're told that the perfume was worth about 300 denarii. Now, if you're not real big on um, knowing your ancient uh, values of money, let me tell you, a denarii was uh, about one day's wage. So that means that this is like a year's salary for a common working person. You know, so amazingly expensive here. And Mary takes this perfume and she empties it on the feet of Jesus and then uses her hair to wipe his feet. Now, let's think about this, for example, uh, for for a minute. Uh, People in the ancient Near East walked everywhere. All right. And footwear was not really that advanced. So everyone back then probably had really ugly, callous, dirty feet. And so Mary is not only dumping this incredibly valuable and luxurious perfume on on Jesus, she's dumping it on like the grossest and dirtiest part of Jesus. Um, To say this is an over-the-top gesture by Mary is an understatement. And also in doing so, Mary like breaks like eight different taboos about how men and women are supposed to relate to each other and how they should act in public. So understandably, this episode provoked quite a reaction from the observers. Um, We have uh, the words of one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, quoted here by John to sum up the general consensus of pretty much everybody watching this scene unfold. Why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Uh, The passage later tells us that Judas said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. However, I think the fact that he makes this argument to conceal his true intentions lets us know that Judas thought it was a pretty good argument. Why waste such expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus when there were so many ways it could have benefited others? It seems like a wasteful extravagance. It's almost an empty gesture. The outrage of the observers really doesn't seem that misplaced, and Judas's argument is entirely reasonable. And that's kind of my question here. If we look at both of these passages, John presents a statement that's pretty reasonable. In both cases, it's a little hard to find the flaw in the logic. Of course it's better for one person to die rather than a whole nation. Of course the money for the perfume would be better spent by donating it to the poor. And I think that clearly John is kind of hitting us over the head with this to make a point. We sense something is wrong. The statements can't be right. After all, Caiaphas and Judas are kind of like the two great villains in this gospel story. And they're the ones who are making these arguments. Now, this ethical issue that John is confronting is exposed and explored in no less great a work of literature than the film Avengers Infinity War. 
Okay. So if you're unfamiliar with the movie Avengers of Fitting, where I hate the Suttons aren't here. Sutton girls would love this. Um, the bad guy Thanos wants to control all the Infinity Stones, which are going to give him absolute power. And he's going to use that power, but not for his own benefit. What does he want to do? Who, who knows? Yes. 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 What? But also, um, he wants to do that to fix his home planet. Yeah, well, that's right. He, he sees that if he were to wipe out half the life in the universe, that that would be a greater good, right? Um, he, he believes this action will create a better universe by eliminating the problem of scarcity. The universe will become a new paradise and there will no longer be reason for its inhabitants to fight over limited resources. Starvation and poverty will be relieved. So Thanos is, is a cold rationalist in his, uh, in his argument. Um, he would be easily be sympathetic to the arguments that Caiaphas and Judas make. Now our heroes, the Avengers, take on the task of opposing Thanos. And they can stop him. Early on, they, they find a way to stop him. But in order to do so, they will have to sacrifice one of their own. Does anybody remember that? Who, who does they have to sacrifice? Vision. Well, that's later on. Because Vision, yeah. This is the first one. Yeah, I haven't got to the second one. Yeah. The Avengers reject this solution. And Steve Rogers says what? Anybody know? We don't trade lives. Wait a minute, isn't Vision an android, so it's kind of a hat? It's kind of a yeah, hat. he's sentient. Right. Okay, okay. Caiaphas would disagree with this. Better for one person to die than the entire nation to perish. So this is the question I wrestled with as I read John. Rationally, Caiaphas and Judah seem right. Yet, as the villains of the story, they can't possibly be correct. And the gospel as a whole seems to be about presenting a different moral vision that Jesus is going to bring into the world. And what is it, what is this ethic that Jesus brings that will challenge this rationalism and expose the fallacy of this argument? So in order to answer the question, clearly, since this is my sermon, we need to go back to the Old Testament. You thought when there were three passages from John, I wouldn't talk about the Old Testament, but you are wrong. Um, we need to go back to the very beginning, to Genesis 1 and creation. And what the Old Testament teaches consistently is that the basic fact of creation is that it is given as a blessing. In the Genesis 1 account, God creates everything and he pronounces it good. And all the spaces God's created are filled with all sorts of life. There's variety. There's abundance. That life is endowed by God with the ability to bring forth, uh, with to, the ability to bring forth more life. In fact, the creatures are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. The verbs are almost over the top in their description. The waters swarm or teem with living creatures. They fill the waters of the sea. The picture that Genesis gives is one of extravagant abundance. It's one of the things that the Psalms continually go back to when they reflect upon creation or call to worship 
today came from one of those psalms that celebrates this abundance. It is this world that God creates out of nothing and every aspect of which is determined by God himself to be good. And then if what is presented as the climax of creation, God creates humans and he brings, breathes life into them in order that they may have dominion over his incredible creation. And the principle here is that the creation is full of vitality. It's exceeding in abundance. It's awesome in magnitude. And it's given to humanity as a gift. It is a blessing conveyed upon humanity. It's an amazing and beautiful picture of the goodness of God and the love he has for his people. And as we read further in the story, the Israelites are given the land of the Canaan as a blessing, much as humanity was given the creation. Like creation, it's full of abundance. It's described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is what the Israelites are told about the land in Deuteronomy 11. The land the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord cares for. Again, what we have here is a picture of abundance in life that's given as a gift and a blessing dependent on a good God who cares for his people to provide continuing vitality. The land is described as receiving rain. Therefore, no one could claim it was by their effort that they had anything to do with it. Leviticus 25 puts it this way. The land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. The basic fact of Israelite life in the land was that it was a blessing and a gift. By contrast, think of the great enemy of the Old Testament, Pharaoh. He fears the abundance and blessing of God. The Hebrews multiply in their land, something God had commanded them to do. Pharaoh views them as a threat, believing they had become too numerous. Here's the thing, though. Egypt was amazingly fertile. Yet Pharaoh felt threatened and so sought to control the Hebrews, first by enslaving them and then later by ordering the murder of the male children. Here, Pharaoh is adopting the logic of Thanos and Caiaphas. Better a few Hebrew babies die for the overall good of Egypt. Now we know what happens next in the story. There's 10 plagues, and God mightily and decisively frees his people from captivity. However, there's an interesting detail that you might have missed in the story. In fact, in all the times I've read this story, I don't think I've ever really taken note of this. Let me read to you from Exodus 12, 31 through 32. When Pharaoh, after the devastation of the 10th plague, finally yields and let the Hebrews go, listen to what he says. Then he, meaning Pharaoh, summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. 
Did you catch it? Pharaoh, the ruler of the greatest empire on the earth at the time, the Pharaoh whose empire contained the Nile River, an unbelievable source of fertility and prosperity, the Pharaoh who controlled all of this is asking for a blessing. Throughout the story of Exodus, the terrible actions of the Pharaoh have resulted in ensla- that have resulted in enslavement and infanticide have been driven by a fear of scarcity, that there might not be enough. And yet now this Pharaoh begins to grasp the power of God's abundance. And I think it is this fact of God's abundance and blessing that Pharaoh eventually grasped that is so foundational in Genesis and for the Israelite society. It is also the key to answering the question as to why Thanos and Caiaphas and Judas are wrong. As John tells us in chapter 10, Jesus came that we may have life and that we may have it abundantly. And it is this vitality and abundance of life that begins with creation that Jesus embodies. John 1 tells us that God's character and very being is experienced directly in Christ. Our passage tells us that no one has seen God, but they have experienced his glory and his grace and his truth through Christ. And however, here's the main point I want to emphasize. Part of the experience of the glory of God is that Christ brings out in his fullness, and this is what I think is awesome, grace upon grace. Think about that. Grace upon upon grace. Jesus, who John identifies with the word, the word that in the beginning of Genesis 1 brought forth creation is now present, bringing with him abundance and blessing to humanity with the gift of grace upon grace. I love this phrase because it perfectly expresses the goodness and beauty of a God who loves his people and provides for them this magnificent world that surrounds us and sustains us. A world of fullness and abundance and vitality and life that multiplies and fills. Grace upon grace means more than that, though, as incredible as that point is. Grace upon grace also shatters the logic of those who live in a fear of scarcity that results in the cold rationalism of Thanos and Caiaphas and Pharaoh and Judas. Grace upon grace means there are no limits to the blessing of God that he can heap on his creation and therefore we are freed from the diminished world of such logic. The logic of the kingdom is given to us so that we can live free from fear and that we can embrace this ethic of blessing. In the Torah, the fact that everything the Israelites have is given as a blessing leads them to an ethic of generosity. The Israelites were to live not like Pharaoh, but to provide for others, knowing that their God had given them an abundance of resources. As the prophet of Isaiah, I think, puts it best, woe to those who join house on house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of Israel. The ethic of Israel was not built on such a way. It was built on love of neighbor. And it is this fullness of abundance and this grace upon grace that leads Jesus to transform water into wine. 
It's what leads him to feed 5,000 people. It is these signs that the Jewish leaders so feared because it means that their premise of fear from which they operate had been shown to be an illusion. As the psalmist says, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on thousands of hills, for the world in its fullness are mine. And it's this gift of blessing and abundance and fullness of grace upon grace that we must embrace. It is a freedom from fear and a welcome antidote to this myth of scarcity that so drives the world in its fear and leads to things like oppression and exploitation. Pharaoh needed the Hebrew slaves to build storehouses. But as Luke says in the parable of the man with the abundant harvest who builds bigger and bigger barns, it is futile if it costs our very life, our soul. No, instead we must echo the character of God we serve and be a people of generosity, confident that our own lives will be enriched as a result and not diminished. I love how Deuteronomy 8 puts it. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. We must acknowledge that we are nothing more than recipients of God's great blessing. It's a mystery that we must remember every day. There's a great episode of uh, that other wonderful work of literature, The Simpsons, in which Bart Simpson says the following prayer. Dear God, we paid for all this stuff, so thanks for nothing. Now, I like it. And the reason I like it, because there is something almost true about it. Haven't we on one level kind of thought the same thing? Yet, we must consider that we are part of a greater story of creation. As the poet Wendell Berry puts it, the simple act of eating means experiencing our dependence and gratitude, for we are living from mystery, from creatures we did not make and power we cannot comprehend. And it's a recognition of the greatness of the abundance and fullness of the gift of God that allows us to live our lives most fully and with true joy. In it, we experience life not as a simple transaction, as a means to an end, but as a deeper and more profound mystery, a mystery that is greater than ourselves, a mystery that is to be enjoyed and also shared with our neighbor who also participates in this mystery and therefore with whom we are all connected. This is the only way to break out of the cycle of futility. Thanos' solution, the logic of cold rationalism, only pushes this problem back. At some point, Thanos will say, face the same problem as the population inevitably grows, a new conflict arise. Jesus tells Judas that the poor are always there, available for us to bestow blessing. However, because of the gift of God's fullness, this is an opportunity for us to echo God's blessing on us to others. The verse Jesus quotes from about having the poor comes from Deuteronomy 15.11. And it says, You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the need and the poor in your land. Our call to action as those people who proclaim the new creation in Christ that has broken into this world, 
as those who are called to be a resurrection people, as though who, those who lead Jesus' revolution is to embody this life of grace upon grace. Doing so will require us to leave behind the world of fear, of scarcity. We must be a people who truly believe in the fullness and abundance of a God. This will require faith, great faith, to look at the facts and be joyful knowing and trusting that God is good and loves and therefore provides for his creation. This will require imagination to contemplate a world that is an alternative to the fearful one that we have been led to believe in. And it will allow us to experience life and to receive it with joy and with thankfulness. It will require us to contemplate its mystery and to revel in it. It will require us to shake loose from the perception that we do not have enough. It will require to trust that our generosity will not be in vain, that it will not diminish us, diminish us, but whose extension will instead provide others with this glorious vision. This is what it looks like when the kingdom breaks in. We have been given grace upon grace. And this fullness from God is inexhaustible. Let us believe in this. Let us share this. Let it motivate us to great acts of generosity, over-the-top extravagant actions like Mary's. Let it provide us with joy. Let us practice resurrection.